In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today, through the grace of God, we will study the last chapter from the first letter of St. Paul to his disciple, Timothy. As we said in the last week, that St. Paul in chapter 5 gave Timothy some instructions about how to deal with different groups of the people in his uh, area. Uh, so chapter 6 also continues with uh, some instructions regarding the slaves regarding the false teachers, regarding how to fight the good fight of faith, regarding the rich, and finally, he will give him final exhortation. These are the main points of chapter 6. Let us read verse 1 and 2. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke, count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. These two verses arise a very important question. Whether Christianity supports slavery or not. Because St. Paul saying to Timothy here, let as many bond servants as are under the yoke, count their own, their own masters worthy of all honor. Definitely, Christianity does not support slavery. Christianity believes in the freedom that God gave to us and the equality between the human beings. Then, why St. Paul instruct Timothy to teach the bond servants in his uh, diocese to be submissive to their own masters. St. Paul is saying, if the system allows this, so let us not live in denial, but let us deal with the reality. The reality says there are slaves. So, if there are slaves, these slaves, they should present themselves as godly people, as people who are keeping the word of God. And by doing this, this will be an opportunity for evangelism, opportunity for bringing other to the faith. That's why uh, St. Paul and also St. Peter in his letters, both of them, instructed the slaves to be submissive to their own masters. 
not because they support slavery, but we as Christians should demonstrate godly and Christian behavior. And here I'd like to remind you with the story of the girl servant of Naaman Suryani that was taken as captive and she was a slave in her master's house. But she was able to testify to the God of Israel and she spoke to her master when he was sick with leprosy to go to Elisha the prophet and he will be healed. So this young girl uh, evangelized to her master about the God of Israel. And Naaman listened to her and went to Elisha and was healed from his leprosy. The, another example is Joseph the righteous. When he sold as a slave and he lived in the house of Potiphar, through his Christian, sorry, through his godly behavior and through testifying to God uh, that he worshipped him, his master, Potiphar, entrusted him with everything in his house. And he was like the manager of the house, not a slave in the house. Uh, so St. Paul is saying, although Christianity does not support slavery, but if there is a slave, let him demonstrate Christian behavior. And when he demonstrate Christian behavior, God will use this as opportunity for evangelism. When he said, many bond servant under the yoke, when he mentioned under the yoke, as if St. Paul telling them, I feel your pain, I feel your suffering. But remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, became man and accepted to be a slave or a servant in the form of man, as St. Paul mentioned in his letter to the Philippians. So, uh, honor and obey your, serve, uh, your masters and be submissive to them from within, not from without. And here, if you obey from within, this is the real freedom. Because if you only obey from outside, this means from inside you are rebelling, but from outside you are just uh, submitting. This is not a freedom. The real freedom is to obey from within, not from only outside. And when he said, under uh, uh, the yoke, count their own masters. Why he used the word own masters? He's trying to tell them they are not strangers. They are your masters. And that's why you need to submit to them. To them. So the word own implies the submissiveness is required. And when he said worthy of all honor, what does it mean all honor? Not only the outside honor, honor from outside, but the honor from within. I respect them from my heart, not only from outside. So it is the inward submission, not the outward submission only. And he said, if you don't do this, you may uh, allow the name of God be blasphemed 
and his doctrine also may be blasphemed. Because your masters will, will say, what kind of God those Christian slaves are worshipping? If their God is a loving God, they should demonstrate this in, in their behavior. So, by my behavior, I can honor my Lord or I can let the name of my God is blasphemed. So, St. Paul instructing the slaves here to submit so that the, the name of the Lord will not be blasphemed and the master will not question what kind of a God must be the God of the Christian when such are the fruits of his worship. Then St. Paul in verse 2 switched to slaves of Christian uh, believers. Verse 1, he's speaking if you are a slave to a non-Christian, to a non-believer. What if you are a slave to a Christian believer? Number one, he didn't use the word under yoke. When he, in verse 2, he said, and those who have believing masters. He didn't say under yoke of believing master. Why? Because all the believers are equal. All the believers are brethren and beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he didn't use the word uh, under you. Number two, he said, don't take advantage of your believing master because he is uh, a brother and a beloved in the Lord. Uh, let the slaves not because their masters are brethren and also equal to them, despise them. Because sometimes when we feel, you know, there is equality here, uh, we will take advantage of this. Unfortunately, like if I am working with uh, a person from the church, I take advantage of this and I expect him to be forgiving even if I didn't follow the rules of my work or the rules of my job. Uh, I expect him to uh, accept this uh, behavior. And we find many of us, if we work with uh, people who are not Christian or are not uh, Coptic, we follow the rules of the job or, or the work more than if we are working with people from the church. So St. Paul is speaking about this point. Don't take advantage because they are brethren. But rather, because they are brethren, so you need to honor them more than the non-believing master. You need to show them how you serve them with greater love and with faithfulness. Because they are beloved and brethren. If I serve the non-Christian, with uh, faithfulness and with submission, how much more my beloved Christian, my beloved brethren in the Lord, I should uh, be submissive to them and serve them with faithfulness. Uh, that's why he said, but rather serve them because those, the masters, who are benefited from my service are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Although we don't have slavery right now, but I think 
the concept of these two verses can be applied to the work field. If I am working with uh, a non-believer, I have to follow and submit to the rules of the work. And if I'm working with uh, a believing uh, boss, I have to submit and to be more obedient because he is my brother and my beloved in the Lord. And the opposite is also true. If I am a boss of you know, a, a Christian, a believer, a person who is sharing with me the same faith, I shouldn't be more harsh on him because, you know, and I take advantage of this. Actually, I should love him, honor him as my brother and my beloved in the Lord. In the same way with the non-believers, if I am the boss, I have to respect them and honor them. So St. Paul uh, here is, is teaching, uh, teaching Timothy to instruct the slaves to demonstrate Christian behavior. Then, from verse 3, he starts to speak again about the false teachers. As I told you, Ephesus had many false teachers, uh, and that's why he wrote this letter to Timothy in order to instruct him how to teach with the false teachers. Those false teachers, as we explained before, they were teaching false asceticism. For example, they were prohibiting marriage. They are saying marriage is sinful. They were prohibiting eating certain kinds of food. So they are preaching false asceticism. Uh, that's why St. Paul is instructing Timothy how to deal with them. He said in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise, otherwise means what? Different than what I taught you, which is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this implies what? Implies that the teaching of St. Paul are the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the words of St. Paul are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we cannot differentiate between the teaching of St. Paul and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, some denominations right now, they try to differentiate. They say, but this is what St. Paul said, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, what St. Paul says is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because every word St. Paul wrote it to us in his letters are inspired by the Holy Spirit. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, what does it mean wholesome words? The sound doctrine, the truth that was taught to us by the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. So if anyone does not consent to the wholesome words, even the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrines which accords with godliness, as we spoke last week, the teaching, the sound doctrine, leads to godly life. That's why he said, the doctrine which accords with godliness. It is very important to have the true faith, to have the true understanding of the doctrines in order to live a godly life. 
because many people belittle the importance of studying the doctrines and the dogmas of the church. And they say it doesn't make any difference to believe this or to believe that. What we should focus on is our Christian behavior. Let us put aside all these theological discussion and theological argument. No, the doctrines, the true doctrine, are the foundation of a godly life. That's why St. Paul said, to the doctrines which accords with godliness. And St. Paul, as a clever physician, he diagnosed the reason behind false teaching. What is the reason behind false teaching? He said pride. Pride is the root of the false teaching. When a person is prideful or proud, he will be righteous in his own eyes. He will not listen to any correcting uh, instruction. He will trust himself more than others. And thus, he will be easily deceived. He will be easily deceived. That's why the Bible teaches us, don't be wise in your own understanding. That's why the church teaches us to be disciples, to have a spiritual director with, which, with whom I you know, counsel with him. I ask counseling and I ask teaching, I ask instruction. Uh, I expose all my thoughts to him to tell me what's right and what's wrong. But if I am my own judge, if I am my own guide, if I am my own director, I will be easily deceived. And if I am deceived, then where the, what is the battlefield for Satan? What is the main battlefield that Satan can deceive me? It is my mind. The mind of the human being is the battlefield that usually Satan starts to attack us through our the thoughts, through the mind. How he attacked our mother Eve? He played with her mind. He started to cast doubt on the word of God. He distorted the word of God. He denied the word of God. He deceived her. She believed him. So uh, he played with her mind. So the pride leads to corrupt mind. The, the pride leads to corrupted mind. And then if my mind became corrupted, I will deny the truth. And if I deny the truth, I will be drifted into what? Into fables and myths. And this will make me a false teacher. So how, what is behind the false teaching? It starts by pride, then corrupted mind, then uh, I will deny the truth and I will teach uh, the false doctrines. That's why St. Paul said, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud. He is proud. And here I want to say uh, a word to our youth and to our younger children. Many of them, they believe that they understand better than their parents. They understand better than their spiritual fathers. They are wiser than their Sunday school teachers. 
And that's why they become very easily deceived because they, they, they think they are wise in their own, own understanding. Let us be humble. Let us uh, consult with our parents, with our spiritual fathers, with our Sunday school teachers before I make a decision and before I follow my own wisdom. Because pride is the root of any deviation from the truth. As St. Paul said, he is proud. Knowing nothing, knowing nothing, they don't un uh, investigate the truth, but they just argue over words. Knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. Although St. Paul here was speaking about doctrines, but I see this applies to many arguments between children and parents. They argue with them about, you know, some words, and they drift from the truth. So let us be humble. Let us listen to those who are wiser than us, older than us, in order to teach us. And this is the importance of having a spiritual father. This is the importance of being a disciple in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, St. Paul, this argument leads to what? Leads to envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, and useless wranglings. If we have a false teacher and a true teacher, and they start to argue together, what's going to happen? Number one, envy. The false teacher is envious of the followers of the true teacher. That's why he wants the people who are following the true teacher to follow him. He is looking for the number of the followers. So that is envy. Envy when they envy the true teachers and try to attract their followers to be the followers of the false teacher. We saw this happening with all the heretics of the church, like with Arius, like with what happened with St. Athanasius, how the Arians tried to pull the people from following St. Athanasius to follow uh, their teaching. That's envy. A strife, conflict between the two parties. Reviling. Many times the false teacher, because he cannot defend his doctrines, so he starts to attack the true teacher. Evil suspicions as they start to uh, interpret the uh, behavior of the true teacher um, in an in, 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 in evil way. They start to suspect their intentions. Uh, they start to cast doubts on their intentions. And useless wranglings, that is uh, when they start to argue and argue and argue uh, over just words or over uh, useless um, uh, thoughts. That's why St. Paul instructs Timothy as a true teacher and a bishop in the church to avoid such arguments. Don't waste your time with such arguments. These arguments will cause strife, will cause disputes, will cause uh, envy, will cause reviling, will cause evil suspicions. So just keep yourself away. 
he said useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, as I told you, pride will lead to the corruption of the mind and destitute of the truth. The next step, they will deny the truth. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain? They use the false asceticism to gain people, to draw people to themselves, and also to gain money and to gain earthly positions. When I present myself as a ascetic person, as a godly person, many people will draw close to me and they, they follow me. So these people observe asceticism, not to draw them close to God, but to gain people, more people, and to gain uh, money from uh, their followers. And the instruction here to Timothy, from such withdraw yourself. From such withdraw yourself, you need to avoid those people completely because they use godliness as a way to advance one's uh, worldly interests. Whether it is uh, vainglory, whether it is uh, earthly gain, but they use false asceticism and godliness as a means of gain. St. Paul, in, in the last chapter, he spoke, uh, when he spoke about how we should exercise ourselves uh, toward godliness, he said that godliness has the promise of uh, the time here on earth, the present time, and also the uh, eternal life. So, is St. Paul saying that godliness is not a way of gain? In verse 6, St. Paul corrects this by saying, now godliness with contentment is great gain. People who are using false asceticism to gain, they will lose everything. But the true godliness, which is your true relationship with God, is not only a gain, but it is a great gain. Great gain in what uh, sense? Here on earth, it will give you contentment. So you will not be a greedy person. And because you will be a content person, you will have contentment. You will be joyful. And also it will give you eternal life. So St. Paul is saying, that true godliness leads to contentment. And if you are content, you will be thankful. You will be joyful here on earth. And it will give you eternal life with Christ in the life after. That's why he said true godliness is not only gain, but it is a great gain. But the false godliness that is based on false asceticism and false teaching and false doctrine is not a way of gain at all. The people will lose. The people will lose. That's why we need to exercise ourselves toward the true godliness. The true godliness will make the person content 
And if you think why people complain, why people envy one another, because the lack of contentment. The main reason behind unthankful behavior is lack of contentment. But if we are content, we will be grateful and will be thankful, and we will stop complaining. That's why the true godliness will lead to contentment, and as St. Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Why we should be content? Why we should be content? St. Paul said in verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. As Job the Righteous, uh, Job the righteous said, we were born naked, and also we will leave this world naked. We came into the world with nothing, and we will leave the world with nothing. So actually, all what claim that we own it, it's not ours. All what we claim that it is ours, in reality, it's not ours. Because when we came into the world, we came with nothing. And when we leave, we will leave with nothing. That's why we need to be content with what we have. And what is the minimum uh, requirement for contentment? St. Paul said, as long as we have food and clothing, and the word clothing in the Greek text means clothing and roof, uh, so a place to live in. We should not become greedy gain seekers. As he said in verse 8, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So as long as you have food and you have clothing, you, should, you shouldn't worry. And that's exactly the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry about what we eat, what we drink, and what we wear. Because your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And he will provide you with food, clothing, and a roof. That's why seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided to you. God will provide you with all these things. And I think here we need to stop and examine ourselves. Are we really content with what we have? Are we content or we usually seek more and more and more? And in, in our definition, in our dictionary, what is the limits of what is necessary and what is uh, not necessary? The more I am materialistic, then the necessity list or the necessary list will be long and long. The more I'm spiritual, the more what I consider it necessary will be less and less. So look at your list, what you believe it is necessary for you and what you believe it's not necessary for you. If your list of what's necessary 
is too long, then you are a materialistic person and you need to re-examine uh, yourself and the virtue of contentment in your life. But if you are a spiritual person, then the list of what is necessary for you will be less and less. Uh, that's why, you know, uh, our fathers, the monks, they left everything. And they felt that as long as they, they are living with God, that's everything for them. They, they need nothing more than this. As David the prophet in his Psalms said, with you, I desire nothing from the world. With you, God, I don't need anything else on earth. It is enough for me uh, to be with me and I'll be with you. My portion is the Lord. Uh, as we read in the Lamentation of Jeremiah. My portion is the Lord. Uh, my soul said so. So he said, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, those who desire to be rich, to have more than food and clothing, they desire to be rich. And why they desire to be rich? Because they trust in the riches. They trust that riches will protect their future. Riches will secure their future. So here, instead of putting my trust in God, who will secure my future, I put my trust in riches. And this is making riches or mammon as God. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said, you cannot serve two masters, either God or the mammon. If you trust in the riches, that the riches will secure your future, then the riches is your master, is your God, not the true God. That's why he said, those who desire to be rich. And by the way, those who desire to be rich can be poor. Uh, because he didn't say the rich people. He said those who desire to be rich. So those who desire to be rich includes both the poor and the rich, because the poor want to be rich, and also the rich want to be uh, more rich. So this word includes everybody, those who desire to be rich. Fall into temptation. I want here to draw your attention St. Paul didn't say they are exposed to temptation, but he say fall into temptation. So it's very dangerous, it's very dangerous to have the desire to be rich, the, the, the desire to trust in, in, in money, that money will protect your future. Unfortunately, even in the churches, we, ha we start to develop this uh, ideology or this way of thinking, we believe that it is the, the riches and the money will secure the church. It is through the money our churches will be built. It is through the money uh, our uh, projects uh, will, will, will be accomplished. Although God, when he sent the disciples, he sent them with no silver and gold. And when they returned, he asked them, did you need anything? They said, no. So 
when they went into their mission without having money, they put all their trust in God. But now if I trust in the money that I have in the bank, then I don't trust in God. So whom we trust more? Many churches now, they sell and buy in the church because they think this money will secure their plans if they want to build, if they want to grow, if they, they trust in the money, not in God. But if we trust in God, God will provide to the church. God provided to the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. How, how he took care of them? It is God's way to take care of us even if, if we are in the wilderness. So let us put our trust in God, not in money. Let us not be concerned with money. And if we trust in God, God will provide more than what we ask or request. That's why he said, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Fall into temptation, not only exposed, but they fall into temptation. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, which means don't allow us to fall into temptation. And what is the next step after falling into temptation? They will be captured by the snare of devil. So this is a further step downwards. He said they fall into temptation and a snare. They will be captured by the devil. And then into many foolish and harmful lusts. They will, uh, they will develop lusts in their hearts, desires in their hearts, that foolish, foolish means irrational, and harmful. Harmful means they will deceive me uh, and they will hurt and destroy my eternal life. They will harm my eternal life. So basically, St. Paul is saying, if you desire to be rich, number one, you, fall, you will fall into temptation. Number two, you will be captured by the snare of the devil. Number three, you will fall into many desires. And these desires are destructive, harmful, and foolish, irrational. And number four, the last step, which should drown men in destruction and perdition. Drown means it is the last step in this terrible descent. So first you will fall into temptation, next will be captured by the snare of devil, third they will be drowned, and drowned in destruction and perdition. Destruction usually refers to here on earth, present time, but perdition refers to the eternal destruction of the body of the body and soul in hell. The eternal destruction of the body and soul in hell. So St. Paul is warning uh, Timothy about the love of money and how love of money can destroy the, the, the person. That's why in verse 10 he told him, for the love of money is a root of all evils, of all kinds of evil. And we may wonder, why is the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? 
So he's saying, if I develop love of money in my heart, or I have love of money in my heart, then from this root, all the, the kinds of evil will grow. Why? He said, St. Paul, he explained to us, he said, for which some have strayed from the faith. For which some have strayed from the faith. So love of money, it destroys the faith. And if my faith is destroyed, then all what is good is destroyed. Because the faith is the root of all goodness. So if love of money destroys the faith, then the love of money will be the root of all uh, kinds of evil. So how the love of money becomes the root of all kinds of evil? Because it destroys the faith. And when it destroys the faith, uh, the faith is the root of all kinds of goodness. Why love of money destroys the faith? Because as I told you, love of money means I trust in money. So money is my God, not the true God is my God. So that is the destruction of faith. If I trust in money more than God, then my faith is destroyed. I don't trust God, but I trust the money. For love of money, and by the way, it is the love of money, not money itself. Money is a gift from God. And if we use it wisely, we can use it for the glory of God. So nothing wrong with the money. It is the love of money. It is the trust in riches. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith. In their greediness, they want more and more and more and more. And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So he's saying love of money is like thorns that pierce into my heart. You know, in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, the Lord spoke about the thorns are the love of money, the love of riches. And he said, love of money choke both the seed, the word of God, and the person himself. So if I develop this desire to be rich, I myself will be choked, and also the word of God will be choked in me. That's why I cannot uh, uh, develop a strong faith in my heart. That's why church teaches us to be giving people, to be generous people, to give without expecting anything in return. If you are not generous in your giving, then you need to re-examine yourself, lest you are attacked by the love of money. The children of God, they will be giver with generosity. They give with generosity, as the Lord Jesus Christ gave us everything abundantly in order to enjoy, as St. Paul will say in this chapter. Then from verse 11, St. Paul starts to speak about the good fight of faith. It's clear that to live a godly life is not an easy thing. And the Lord Jesus Christ told us that the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. So our spiritual life is a life of war. 
war against the desires of the flesh, war against uh, the love of the world, and war against uh, Satan. That's why we as children of God, we have to put on the armor of God and to fight all the time, to fight against the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the world, and also Satan. That's why in verse 11 he told him, but you, O man of God, flee these things. St. Paul is reminding Timothy that he is a man of God. What does it mean a man of God? Who has God as his true riches. So if you trust God, not the money, you are a man of God. You are serving God as your master. But if you trust the money, then the mammon is your master. So he's reminding Timothy that he is a man of God. And he gives him some instruction as a man of God. The first instruction, flee these things. These things referring to what? To love of money. Why we should flee the love of money? Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So in order to live with God, I have to flee the love of money. And the word flee has a sense of danger. I'm escaping from something. So there is love of money is running after me, want to capture me in this snare, but I am fleeing. I'm escaping. I'm running away from this danger. But usually when I flee, I have to flee to a refuge, to a refuge, a place in which I escape. That's why he told him, you need to flee and pursue. Fleeing from a danger and pursuing as if you are going to a place of refuge and a place of uh, uh, safety. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue. Pursue what? He mentioned six things you need to pursue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. What's righteousness? Righteousness, to do what is right in your relationship with others. So righteousness has to do more in our relationship with one another. But in order to do what's right with others, you have to have a right relationship with God. That is the godliness. So godliness is the inward your relationship with God, your inward relationship with God. And from this godly life, you will be righteous in dealing with others. So righteousness has to do with dealing with others. Godliness has to do with dealing with God. You cannot be righteous unless if you are a godly person. That's why he told him you need to pursue righteousness and godliness. But godliness and righteousness both comes, come from what? From your faith in God. From having the, the true faith. From following the true doctrine. You remember when I told you the true doctrine, the true faith leads to a godly life? So... Here, how it goes. If you have the true faith, the true doctrine, then you, you will uh, live a godly life with God. And we, when you live a godly life, 
this will be demonstrated in your relationship with others, so you'll be a righteous person. And your righteousness and your godliness will be manifest in your love toward God and toward one another. Because how can I show my faith? Faith is something unseen. St. James, he said, show me your faith but by your works. And love is about how to deal with one another. Love, when my, my works is the demonstration of my love toward God and toward others. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said, the whole law and prophets can be summarized in these two commandments. Love God from your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So again, if I have the true faith, then I will be loving person, loving to God and loving to my brother. And because I love God, then I will have godly life. And because I love my brother, then I will be righteous. I will do acts of righteousness with my brethren. But as I told you, it is a fight. It's a war. So war needs what? Needs from within patience, perseverance, endurance. And this patience and perseverance, it is something from within. But it will appear in my gentleness. How to react to those who are opposing me, how to act to the opponents in humbleness and meekness. So in these six virtues, there is one virtue, it is inward, and the other, it is outward. The godliness is my inward relationship with God. Righteousness is how to deal with others. Faith is my trust in God, and it's demonstrated in my love. And patience is my perseverance, my endurance from within, but it is demonstrated in my gentleness, how I deal with others with meekness, gentleness, and humbleness. So these six virtues are related to each other. If I want to reorder them, it starts with faith, true faith, sound doctrine. Then faith will be demonstrated in love. That's the practical faith, not the theoretical faith. When I have this love toward God, I will have godly life. And I have this love toward my neighbor, I will have righteousness. But godliness and righteousness, I am, as I said, in, in my spiritual life, I am in a constant war. Satan will attack me. That's why I need to develop this patience from within, to persevere while I'm walking in this difficult way and entering into this narrow gate. And this perseverance and patience from within will be demonstrated in my gentleness, in my meekness, in my humbleness in dealing with others. So this is the, 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 the good fight. If you have these six virtues, faith, love, righteousness, godliness, patience, gentleness, then you are fighting the good fight. In verse 12, he, tell, he told him, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. So, as a man of God, number one, he has to flee the love of money. Number two, he has to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, 
love, patience, gentleness. Number three, he has to fight the good fight until the last breath. And you are not alone in this fight. The grace of God will support you. The Holy Spirit will support you. So you are not fighting by yourself because without God, we cannot achieve anything. You are not fighting by yourself. Call upon God and he will support you by his grace and by his Holy Spirit in, in, in this fight. And number four, when I fight, I will lay hold on eternal life. What does mean laying hold on eternal life? The, the winners of the good fight will win the, the prize, which is the eternal life. And we will be sure of our salvation when we fight the good fight. I will know that my eternal life is my inheritance. Like a student who's studying very well, so he's sure that he will pass the exam and he will win the prize. That's why he told him, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, if you want to be saved, if you want to lay hold on the eternal life, you need to fight the good fight, which means works are important for our salvation. Works, the good fight, are important with, the, with our salvation. I cannot lay hold on eternal life if I don't fight. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called. All of us are called and invited to the eternal life. None of us is invited to uh, hell or to the lake of fire. In Matthew chapter 25, the Lord said to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom that's prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And he said to those on his left side, depart from me, uh, evil doers, for the lake of fire, which is prepared for the devil and all his soldiers. So hell is not prepared for us. Hell is prepared for the devil and all his soldiers. But unfortunately, some people will deny their calling and will reject their invitation to the eternal life and they will follow the devil and that's why they will inherit with the devil the lake of fire but it is very clear god prepared the eternal life to us and he prepared the hell to the devil not for us and and saint paul is saying the same words to timothy you are invited to the eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in presence of many witnesses. In baptism, we say the confession, the creed before baptism. And when we baptize the children, their parents or godparents, they recite the creed on their behalf. And usually baptism uh, is made in, in, in public. So this uh, confession is in presence of many witnesses. Also, in the ordination of priests, priests and bishops, they say the vow in front of everybody. So again, they confess the good confession before many witnesses. And also, in our daily life, we confess that we are Christians 
and we confess the true doctrine and the sound doctrine of God. So, St. Paul is saying to Timothy, you took a vow in the day of your baptism. You took a vow in the day of your ordination as a bishop to Ephesus. You took a vow every day when you, you say, I'm Christian, I am uh, the servant of God. And you say this vow before many people, before many witnesses. And these witnesses will hold you accountable if you drift away, if you fall away. So you took a vow to uh, adhere to the sound doctrine and to live a godly life. So there is, here there is a sense of accountability and responsibility. You already took this vow before many witnesses, so you need to live up to this vow. That's why he told him, you have confessed the good confession before many witnesses. So now you need to conduct your life based on this vow and this confession. In verse 13, uh, he is appealing with him to keep the commandment without blemish. He told him, I urge you in the sight of God. So again, he is appealing to him once more to keep his vow without blemish, without spot, without uh, deviation. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things. Why he described God here, the one who gives life to all things? Because if God gives life to all things, then that is the assurance that after we die, we will be raised again and inherit the kingdom of God. And we lay hold on eternal life. So, because we trust that God gives the life, so even when we die, God will, rise, uh, uh, will raise, us, raise us up again in the last day and will inherit the kingdom of God. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Who, so he's telling him also that this confession that you confessed before many witnesses, the Lord Jesus Christ also bore witness to this confession before Pontius Pilate. If you refer, you go back to the dialogue between the Lord Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate, the Lord confessed before Pontius Pilate that he is a king. And his kingdom is the kingdom of the truth. His kingdom is the kingdom of the truth. And his kingdom is not of this world. So, the Lord Jesus Christ bore witness that he is a king, and his kingdom is that of the truth. And our part is to confess the truth following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, St. Paul is saying to Timothy here, I urge you to keep this commandment, to keep the word of God, to keep the sound doctrine without blemish, without spot, because God will give you the inheritance of eternal life if you kept the commandment without blemish. And also, if you confess to the good confession that the Lord Jesus Christ witnessed before Pontius Pilate, 
then God will give you the eternal life. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession, before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless. Keep this commandment, the commandment is the gospel of Christ, is the sound doctrine, is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep it without spot means keep it pure. Keep it away from the false teaching. Don't add, don't distort the word of God in order to be blameless in the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment until the last day of your life, until the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he told him until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, he is here reminding him that the Lord will appear to judge the world in righteousness. That's why we will be standing before the throne of God to give an account of what did we do with this trust, with this faith that God entrusted us with. We need to keep this commandment until the last breath of our life. And we need to remember that we will stand before God and will give an account. So this will help me to keep the commandment of God without spot, pure, and to be blameless before God. So again, to summarize, St. Paul said to Timothy, as a man of God, number one, you need to flee the love of money. Number two, you need to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, um, patience, and uh, gentleness. Number three, you need to lay hold to fight the good fight. You need to fight the good fight. Number four, you need to lay hold on the eternal life. Number five, to keep the commandment without spot and blameless. Then he told him, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He refers to God the Father, not to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which the Father will manifest in the Father's own time. Why I'm saying that he refers to the Father? Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the, the Lord said to the disciple that the times and the seasons are the responsibility of the Father. That's why when he asked the Son about the, the day of the second coming and the end of the world, the Lord said, even the Son doesn't know the day. Doesn't know means it is not in his responsibility. It is the responsibility of the Father. And here we, we should learn how the, the three hypostases of the Holy Trinity respect the responsibility of one another. The times and the seasons are the responsibility of the Father. That's why the Son said, even the Son doesn't know the days. So, which he, the Father, will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed, the Father who is the blessed, the blessed in himself, uh, in his essence, he is blessed, and also he is the source of all blessing. 
who is the blessed and only potentate. Potentate means the only royal leader, the only true king, the only true God. So if there is any other king, God is the king of kings. If any person claims that he is a lord, God is the lord of all lords because he is the only potentate, he is the only the royal leader. So God is the blessed one, the source of all blessing, the only potentate, the only true uh, royal leader. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is also the only immortal being who alone has immortality. In his essence, he is immortality. Yes, he will give his creation, uh, like, you know, uh, the saints and the angels, he will make them immortal. But immortality to us is acquired. But for God, it is in his essence. He's immortal in his essence. But for us, it is given, it is acquired. Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light? God is light and is dwelling in light. If the sun, which is the creation of God, we cannot approach it because of its exceeding heat and power. How much can we approach God? Definitely we cannot approach God. Uh, and light here referring to his inexpressible glory, his brightness, his glory, it is unapproachable. But God allows us to see a glimpse of his brightness and his glory. But God is, is, is dwelling in light that is unapproachable. Whom no man has seen or can see, and this emphasizes that he's speaking about the Father, because as we read in John chapter 1, verse 18, God the Father is not seen, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father revealed the Father to us. We saw him through the Father. Philip asked the Lord Jesus Christ, show us the Father and it is uh, sufficient for us. And the Lord told him, who sees me, saw the Father. So all these verses about the Father, he, no man has seen him, or can see him, but the Son revealed the Father to us. To whom be honor and everlasting power. Uh, it is befitting to give honor to God, and it is meet and right to give him uh, glory, because he is the only one uh, that is, uh, befits him honor and everlasting power. That's why in the Holy Passion Week we say, Thine is the power, Thine is the glory, Thine is the majesty forever. Amen. So all these verses are about God the Father, which is the fa from verse 15, which the Father will manifest, will reveal the Son in, in the last day, in His own time. It is His responsibility, the responsibility of the Father. He, the Father, who is blessed, and only potentate the king of kings and the lord of lords who alone has immortality as in his essence dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power amen
Then from verse 17, he starts to speak about the rich people. And his instruction about the rich people covered actually three points. Uh, one point in verse 17, one point in verse 18, and one point in verse 19. The first point, what ought to be their disposition? What the right attitude of the rich people? How they should present themselves? He said, command those who are rich in this present age. So he's referring between the earthly rich and the true riches in, in, in eternal life. So he's speaking about those who are rich here on, 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 uh, in the present age. Not to be haughty, not to elevate themselves above others because they have more money, but to be humble. So that's how they present themselves. Number one, they have to be humble, not to be haughty. Number two, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Not to trust in uncertain riches. So he's saying here, don't trust in money, but trust in God. Don't let the money to be your God, but it is God who should be your true God. And also he is saying riches, trusting in riches is uncertain. Maybe today I have all these riches, tomorrow I will lose it. So if you put your trust in riches, then you are living in uncertainty. You are living in uncertainty. But if you put your trust in God, then you will live in, in, in true security and true uh, peace. So number one, not to be haughty. Number two, not to trust riches that are uncertain. Number three, to trust in God who provides riches, both temporal and eternal uh, to uh, enjoy. So if you trust in God, you will be rich. You will be rich here on earth and in heaven. You'll be rich here in earth because you will be content. And actually, the true riches is the contentment. Many people who have a lot of money, but because they are not content, they, don't, they, they, they have no happiness. But many poor people who have just a few resources, but because they are content, they are happy. So what is the true riches? The true riches is to be content, not to have a lot of money. So if we trust God, he will give us richly all things, all things here on earth and in heaven to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy. God wants us to live in joy and happiness. That's why he will provide. Trust God, he will provide. But if you trust the money, the money is uncertain. And you may lose it. And if you lose it, you will be unhappy. So that's the first point. First instruction that the rich, not to be haughty, not to trust in riches, but to trust in God. Number two, what they should do with the money, their money, with the riches. In verse 18, he told them, let them do good. God give you the money in order to use it and to do good with it. In order to distribute it to the poor and to the needy. In order to support one another. 
That's why he told him, let them do good that they be rich in good works. So another definition of the true riches is to be rich in good works, not rich in your bank account. So the true riches is to be content person. The true riches is to be rich in good works, like Dorcas, uh, this widow that uh, uh, was uh, departed and asked St. Peter to raise her from the death. Uh, Dorcas, the Bible, in the book of Acts, testified for her that she was rich in good works. That's the true riches. Ready to give with generosity, free givers, ready to give, willing to share. So I am ready to give others. And for things that I need, I will share it with others. So because nothing is mine, I came into this world uh, without anything, and I will live without anything. So all what I have, I have to share it with others and give it to those, what, uh, those who need it. So he gives them four instructions about what to do with the riches, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be free givers, and to allow others to share our goods. Number three, as I told you, he covered three points or three instructions. Number one, about their attitude. Number two, what to do with the money. Number three, what are the consequences if they use the money wisely? What are the blessings they will have when they use the money wisely? The first blessing, they will store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, which means they are making good treasure here on earth and on heaven. Because when they help others, actually others will love them. So this is a real treasure for them, to, to be like Amba Abraham, the Bishop of Fayyum. All people loved him here on earth. So he had treasure here on earth. And when he went to heaven, he has also the true riches in heaven. So by sharing what I have and by distributing what I have, I'm storing up for myself a good foundation for the time to come, for my future here on earth and my future in heaven. And that is the real storage, not in my bank account, but the love of the people and the true riches in heaven. And the second blessing, they will lay hold on eternal life. By doing this, they will inherit the eternal life. Finally, the last two verses in this chapter, it is fi uh, some final exhortation to Timothy. Verse 20, he told him, O Timothy. So here, uh, calling him by his name, as if he is giving him a very personal message as, as the bishop of Ephesus. What is this message? He told him, guard what was committed to your trust. What was committed to your trust? Implies what? Implies that this sound doctrine that committed to your trust is not yours. It belongs to God. That, and God entrusted you with it. That's why don't diminish it. Don't distort it. You need to keep it as is because it is not yours. It is just committed to your trust. The Arabic, the Wadi'ah, like someone who has something to do with 
So God entrusted you with this. It's not yours. That's why you need to keep it uh, pure. Uh, as St. John Chrysostom said, it is not yours. It is another's uh, property with which you have been entrusted. Diminish it not at all. Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle dabblings and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Again, St. Paul, over and over, he is saying, you need to avoid uh, idle talks. You need to avoid idle dabblings. You need to avoid uh, just arguments. Many times we find ourselves are drawn into these arguments. No, we should avoid these arguments completely. Avoid the profane and idle dabblings and contradiction of what is falsely called, called the knowledge. St. Paul is saying there is a true knowledge and a false knowledge. So there is a knowledge that's falsely called the knowledge and a knowledge that is really true knowledge. How can we differentiate between them? St. John Chrysostom said, where there is no faith, there is not knowledge. Where there is not faith, there is no knowledge. So the knowledge that based on the sound doctrine, that is the true knowledge. The, faith, the, the knowledge that's based on false teaching and false doctrine, it is wrong knowledge. And in order to guard the faith, you need to avoid completely babblings and false knowledge. Uh, avoid, uh, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. So those who profess these false teaching and these false knowledge, they drifted away from the true faith. They drifted into fables. That's why he said uh, they, they lost their uh, eternal life. Uh, and he concluded this verse by saying, grace be with you, amen. He restricts here the salutation to St. Timothy because this epistle was not to be read in public. That's why the salutation or the benediction he addressed to Timothy because he, uh, this was not addressed to everybody. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.